is episode 403 of The Amy Ayler Show. Show notes can be found at amyaylorshow.com forward slash 403. Today's episode, I invited my dear friend, Mike Robbins, to talk about we're all in this together. How beautiful of a title is that? And The Amy Ayler Show is for powerful women that are sick and tired of being so darn hard on themselves putting all that pressure on themselves, feeling like they are stuck in that never enough cycle because it's time for you to rise into a leader that we can believe in. And that's what the Amy Ayler show is all about. Mike Robbins, my special guest for today's show is the author of five books, including his brand new title. We're all in this together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. For the past 20 years, Mike's been a sought after speaker and consultant delivers keynotes and seminars for some of the top organizations in the world. His clients include, you know, there's little things like Google and Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Genentech, eBay, Harvard University, Gap, LinkedIn, Oakland A's, and so many others. He and his work have been featured in the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review, as well as on NPR and ABC News. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, hosts his own podcast, which I highly recommend, called We're All in This Together, and his books have been translated into 15 different languages. I know Mike personally, he was really a mentor and a colleague that cheered me on, especially around publishing my very first book back in 2011. He is a total sweetheart and someone who is really a stand for all voices to be heard. You're going to love today's show. So without further ado, on to the show. Mike, I'm so excited to have you here. It's always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, well, any, any opportunity to talk to you is always a blessing. So (laughs) thanks for uh, having me here back on your podcast and it's great to connect. Well, okay. So here we are, we're in the midst of this global pandemic, financial crisis happening. Like people, I know there's listeners who are getting laid off, who've gotten laid off. I'm sure people who have, have, have COVID right now have been touched by it in some way. And then you write this book, we're all in this together. Now I know because I'm also published books that you did had no idea that this was coming, Right. but what an incredible time to be bringing this message out into the world. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, Amy. Um, we probably talked a little bit about this, although I don't know how much of the story that I shared with you, you know, I, I don't love writing books. You know, I love to talk. I love to speak. I love, but the writing the books thing is always a little bit of a blessing and curse for me. I'm grateful to get to do it. Feel super honored. Love it when it's done. But the process is always a little challenging for me. And I finished my fourth book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, came out in 2018, and I was done. And I was like, okay, good. I'm I'm good. I'm 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 good for a while. I probably won't write another book for like five years. That was like the rational part of me. And then like three weeks later, I had this huge download that I had to write another book and I had to write it right now. <laughs> and I was like arguing with myself and, and then my wife, Michelle, who you know, it was like, um, no, we're not doing that. You're not doing that. I'm like, I know, babe, I know. But it, it just was like, and the, the reason it was so strong was like, you got to write a book, sort of picking up where you left off with bringing yourself to work about teams and about culture and how you really create this. And specifically, it's supposed to be called We're All in This Together. And it needs to come out before the election in 2020. Wow. Like what? Okay. And I'm like, I'm literally like having this weird sort of conversation. If you saw me walking down the street, you'd think I was crazy person, like talking to myself. (laughs) And then I was like, okay. And finally, and then I just sort of wrote out the thing, the proposal and I sent and everybody involved, you know, was interested, my agent, the publisher, everybody. 
but nobody liked the title. They were like, no, that's, it sounds weird. We don't know exactly what it means. It's a little soft. And I was like, super adamant. No, mm. I'm not writing this book because they wanted to call it. I have a program that I've delivered for like 20 years. The whole time I've been doing this called the keys to creating a championship team. And they were like, that's the title. Just mm. use that. You're a sports guy. You talk about teamwork. You talk. No, I'm like, nope, that's not the title. This is the title. And if this isn't the title, I'm not writing the book. And I'm like, wow. and I'm wow. not, I mean, I have strong opinions, but I'm not usually like that about stuff like that. I was like, Hey, they want to publish it, whatever. I have this idea. Who cares what it's called? We'll go. But I was like, nope. And the reason why that was so important to me was because the country and the world have been so unbelievably divided in the last few years. Not that that's a new phenomenon, but there's an intensity to it that's been personally deeply, deeply troubling to me as many of us, I think. And I almost think, and I travel around the country a lot when we're not in a pandemic, right? And (laughs) talk to people. And even when I meet people whose politics are completely opposite of mine, there's not a single person that I talk to, Amy, when we really get into it, that thinks, you know what I think is really great is if we all hate each other and we're really nasty to each other and we're like fighting back. Like that's really good and healthy for the country, for the world. Let's keep doing that. But we've gotten so disconnected that part of what I've learned over the course of my life and in my work is that the closer we get to each other, the more we realize how much we have in common. And that's always been kind of at the core. And so for me, the book was like, I want to write about teamwork and all the stuff that I do with companies and teams, but I also really want to speak to this notion that how do we find more common ground? How do we remember that there really isn't a them, it's all us. And then the book ends up coming out right now, which like, what? It's, it was so crazy. And like the, all these people, politicians and business leaders and celebrities are using this phrase, we're all in this together. And it's like, the book's not about the pandemic. But I think what I've been reflecting on over the last few weeks and few months is I think the reason why people are saying this so much right now is because we know intuitively when we're going through a challenge, we have to lean on each other. We can't get through something this big and this scary and this painful and difficult by ourselves. And, you know, so that is now it's taken on kind of a a whole other meaning and purpose, if you will. Um, And it's been humbling and, and a bit overwhelming, but but also really important to me to be, you know, talking about it. I love that. And I, you know, so much of what's written in the book, which by the way, I really encourage all of you listening to go, I always say buy three copies, one for yourself, one for someone that you really care about that, you know, needs to hear this message and then keep one. And then it's like, when we get back to having dinner parties or barbecues or whatever, <laughs> you'll be having a conversation with someone and be like, wait a minute, I have the book just for you. Right, right. You know, I love gift, gifting people surprise books when they come over. Yeah, but, me too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's such a powerful message and everything that you talk about in the book around teams inside corporations, which is kind of the context. It's really about, you know, team building inside organizations and making sure that everyone on the team really gets that they're on the team together. And then here we are trying to remember that we're on the team called, you know, the human race, humanity, whatever words you want to use. And so it feels like everything that I read in the book or actually listened to, because I've been listening to the audiobook, <laughs> and which I love, which is all of you can hear, Mike's voice is so great. So it's so fun because <laughs> he read it himself. Um, but it's like everything that I hear, I'm like, this is so applicable to the world right now. It's so applicable to my family right now, especially mm. as we shelter in place of like, yeah. oh, if I just remember that we're all on the same team and maybe I could do away with some of my self-righteousness, which <laughs> I want you to talk about. <laughs> that oh, maybe, yeah. You know, right? Because I was thinking about that with my husband, Rob, and I was thinking about 
you know, this whole homeschooling with our kindergartner. And, um, you know, we had this moment with her science fair project. Don't even get me started as to why they're doing a science fair project for a six-year-old. But anyway, (laughs) when when we're homeschooling, but it was like, I had this moment where this handoff didn't really happen. And I had this moment of, I really just wish Rob would do it my way, which also known as the right way. (laughs) Yes, of course. Can you talk a little bit about the self-righteousness? Cause that really like stung me. I was like busted. Yes. Well, well, the, the, the story that I share in the book that I, I think really illustrates it, and it also has to do with kind of, you know, with me and Michelle, just like you and Rob, I mean, self-righteousness shows up in our relationships, particularly our significant other relationships with our children, with our friends and family and at work. It's this notion of like, again, I'm right, you're wrong. And we usually don't come out, I mean, unless we're really mad or we're really in a fight with someone and we're like, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you know, but that's not, it, it comes out often in these sort of sideways or passive aggressive ways. We were, we were in the car a couple of years ago, backing out of the garage in our house. And, uh, we were in the car that Michelle normally drives, but she asked me if I would drive cause we were going somewhere as a family. And it was, you know, she's sitting shotgun and the girls are sitting behind us. And we, and our, our two girls, Samantha's 14 now, Rosie's 11. This was a couple of years back. So I think Rosie was about nine and Samantha was 11 or, or 12. But, um, as we're backing out, the car seemed to be parked at a little bit of an angle and it kind of weird. And it like the car sit in the garage pretty tight. And whenever I'm in Michelle's car, I mean, you, you know, I drive it sometimes. It's a little awkward. I have to change the mirror and the seat and get myself situated. But as I'm backing out, I'm like thinking, Oh man, I think I might like, you know, hit my car and her car into my car. And I, and, I, and I stop in the middle of my struggle and I turn to Michelle and I say, Hey babe, you know, if you park the car just like this, and I start explaining to her the way that I park the car and what I look for and all of the right. And as I'm explaining this, Amy, Rosie, who was nine at the time from the back seat, says, Hey dad, Hey dad, stop mansplaining to mom. <laughs> to which at first I was like super impressed that she knew what that was. I was like, oh, you go girl. Yeah. And then I'm like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I was not mansplaining to mom. I was simply just, and I look at Michelle and I look at Samantha and I look at Rosie and all three of them were looking at me and they were saying, yes, you were. <laughs> and I stopped and I realized, oh my gosh, what was I doing? Like, you know, I love Michelle. I respect her. She's amazing. And I was basically saying, I parked the car the right way. You parked the car the wrong way, right? <laughs> I'm superior. You're inferior. You should listen to me as I helpfully, do you know? And again, as I gave her the feedback or so to speak, it wasn't like she was just sitting there going, oh, hey, thanks for the feedback. Anything else? She was like, no, you know what I mean? And if you think about that situation, it's not just about with our spouses, but again, it's not to say that we don't have times in life. You know, you and I are both coaches, right? Coaching people, even when they, if they hire us to do it, it's like, hey, I'm going to give you some feedback. If you're a manager of someone, if you're married to someone, if you're the parent of someone, part of our job in a really strong, healthy relationship is to offer feedback, but not from a righteous place because the natural response to self-righteousness is defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Even if what we're saying has value, let's just say for the sake of argument, I was explaining to Michelle a more effective way to park the car in the garage, right? Let's just say that. That may or may not be true, but it would be better if I started from a place of like, oh, wow, I'm having a hard time, which was true. I'm struggling here. Um, hey, do you ever struggle with this? Mm-hmm. Or, or I have an idea of what might make this easier. Can I offer that? Or some kind of curiosity or opening of, can I come from a more genuine, more even vulnerable place of that I want to say something about this. And Michelle might have said, you know, yeah, sometimes that is, I don't know why that happens. And then we have a very different conversation. Or she might have said, nope, never a problem for me. I guess, <laughs> I guess we just do it differently. And at that point, Amy, I need to just shut up. Right. Because if I'm going to try to give her feedback on top of her saying, I'm good, I don't need any feedback, I'm fine with this, you're having a problem. Now I'm just being a jerk, right? right. 
And again, we do this even with the people that we love the most. And the problem is when we're being self-righteous, we don't think we're being self-righteous. We just think we're right. And we're like, we're so attached to our rightness. What we don't realize is, again, and I'm not saying don't speak up. I'm not saying water down your opinion. I'm not saying don't be passionate. I'm not even saying don't take a point of view or have a position. It's just when we're so attached to the position, we're now not open to hearing it or seeing it any other way. And we damage ourselves and our relationships in the process. When... In the book, you know, you talk a lot about psychological safety yes. and having that container. This is the first pillar yep. of what you talk about in the book. And, you know, when we look at that inside the workplace, kind of going from the family home, which I hope all of us have that sense of psychological safety in our homes, yep. I hope, You're right. and all of the tips that you give about creating psychological safety, whether we're talking about at home or teams at work, so important. And I, I was curious for you if you can talk a little bit about psychological safety and why it's important and what we can do to create more psychological safety. Well, and, and yeah, thanks. Because basically psychological safety, I like to think of it as like group trust. It means the group is safe enough that I can offer a different opinion. I can take a risk. I can fail. Not that I want to, but that I'm safe in that environment. I can admit that I'm struggling. I can ask for help. I can even get a little pissed off or what, you know, I mean, there's safety. We're all going to be kind, ideally to each other and respectful, but that there's safety knowing if I do any of those things, if I'm the dissenting opinion in the group, it's, I'm not going to get shamed, ridiculed, kicked out of the group for doing it. And why that's so important is we can't really be creative. We can't be innovative if we're walking on eggshells, if we're afraid, right? If I say this, someone might jump down my throat. If I make this mistake, right? And we've all had experiences in life where we feel that sense of psychological safety. And more often, sadly, when we don't, some of the things that we can do to make it more safe is first and foremost is a willingness to be authentic and even be vulnerable. That gives people permission. The natural human response to vulnerability is empathy, And when people, particularly leaders, but people in any positions of authority or privilege or are willing to make themselves vulnerable, like great leaders have the ability to say things like, you know what, I screwed that up. Or you know what, I I need your feedback and perspective because I have blind spots and I can't see what's going on here. Or this is going to take all of us. Like one of the things right now with my own team, I keep saying is like, look, I'm doing the best I can, but I've never been here before. We've never been here before, which is true for all of us in our families and in our work, whatever our work looks like. Even if you're there and you're dealing with having COVID or you're laid off, as painful and difficult as those things are with the people around you, the people that you know and love, a willingness to admit how you're actually feeling or that maybe you're struggling Again, we've been taught a lot of us, oh, that's weak. Don't do that. People will take advantage of you. And while those things are possible, what that tends to do is give everyone else within the group permission. Oh, wow. If Amy's willing to admit that she made a mistake or that she's a little scared or she needs some help or she whatever, then maybe I can too. And then we all just start kind of being more real with each other. When we look at this, you know, because as you know, I I do a lot of coaching and women's leadership work mm-hmm. inside, you know, companies in Silicon Valley, for example, where I'll go in and I'll meet with, uh, I, I specialize in working with working moms in that yes. environment. And so I'll go in and, and work with a leader that is leading a team and she'll say to me, you know, maybe that one of her kids is struggling. Well, literally 100% of the time, and I kid you not, 
in my first meeting, the woman cries. She just bursts yeah. into tears at some point because yeah. she's been trying to hold it all together all yeah. the time. And it doesn't feel like there's a lot of psychological safety going on. It doesn't feel like that particular woman leader, she doesn't want to be seen as weak. She doesn't want to be perceived as emotional. She doesn't want the, you know, age old, like, oh, is it that time of the month? That's why you're so emotional, right? Like any of that bullshit, excuse my language, but it enrages me. Yes. And the, you know, all that stuff that happens. But what would you say to women and particularly women of color that Mm. are dealing in an environment where there really isn't that psychological safety and it's really preventing them from rising and being able to be as innovative and creative as they want to be? Well, the first thing I would say at some level is I have no idea what your experience is like Yeah, because I really don't. I mean, do I have empathy for it? A hundred percent. Have I heard about it, thought about it, felt into it myself. Absolutely. I mean, Amy, when I wrote Bring Your Whole Self to Work and I would travel around, I would, a lot of wonderful people, really well-intentioned, very courageous came up to me and said things like, hey, Mike, it's great to talk about bringing your whole self to work, but you're white, you're straight, you're male, you're cisgendered, you live in California, you have all of these privileges. Like they'd go down the list. And at first it was a little hard for me to hear. And I kind of went into this, well, wait, you know, I grew up single mom. We didn't have any money. Like I'm thinking privilege to me sounds like, like I'm a Rockefeller. Right. And then all of a sudden I was like, hold on a second. Let me look at this differently. Let me be a little bit more open-minded and humbled by like, wow, I have a ton of privilege that I don't acknowledge. And all of us do, by the way, some of us have more than others clearly. And what we know from the research, and we don't even need to do research on this, just know from lived experience, it is clearly easier for some of us to be more vulnerable, to bring more of our whole selves to work. It feels safer to do so. Even if like, you know, we haven't necessarily been trained or encouraged, you know, the thing about like emotionality or even like, you know, tears as an example, one of the things that I've learned about this, like as a boy growing up, I got the training, the man training, like be a man, suck it up. Boys don't cry. That just about every man I know, almost regardless of their age or their race or their background or where they grew up, we all got some version of that. Some of us got it more intensely than others. And the older we are, the more ingrained it is. But then when I talk to most women, obviously I don't know what it's like to be a little girl, to be a teenage girl, to be a young woman, to be a woman of any age. Um, I hear from a lot of women, particularly in the professional world, it's like, hey, listen, I broke down and cried in this meeting, you know, seven years ago. And like, I never heard the end of it and they used it against me and I didn't get promoted and they thought I was weak. And it's like, so there's like a trauma that's happened from just showing up and being right. It's like the women who cry when you talk to them the first time, because like they're holding it all together. And that training has been like, don't be who you are, be some other version of yourself. Cause that's, what's going to work at work, which breaks my heart. Right. And both of those things are heartbreaking for different reasons. But in general, I would say most of us have a legitimate story and evidence to prove why it's not safe for us to show up that way. And in some cases, in many cases for women, particularly women of color, it's even that much harder and it's even that much more risky to do. So again, easy for me to say, well, just be yourself and people will accept you for who you are. This is where it gets into where I talk about in the, in the second pillar of the book around inclusion and belonging being so important. And the reality is that one of the other reasons, Amy, that I wrote this book and that I'm now starting to talk more directly about race and gender and orientation and some of these things, which I had shied away from for a lot of my life and career, not because I wasn't interested, not because I didn't actually have something to say and feel really deeply about these things, 
mostly because I was either scared mm-hmm. or out of respect for like, who really wants to hear a straight white dude talk about these things? Like, what do I know? And it wasn't that I didn't think I knew anything. It was just like, I don't want to be perceived negatively. I don't want to cause any harm. And I don't want to step on the toes of people who have more lived experience. While I still feel some of those fears, I've now come to realize, or at least for myself, especially given what's been happening in our country and our world the last couple of years, like that doesn't work for me. And I don't care if I'm uncomfortable. Brene Brown said in her Netflix special, like saying that you don't want to talk about issues of race and gender and equity and inclusion because they make you feel uncomfortable is the definition of privilege. Yes. And so like, you know, again, pardon my French, but tough shit if it makes you uncomfortable. Like, how do you think of it? Like, I I often say to my fellow straight white men, like you're uncomfortable because you don't want someone to think you might be racist or sexist. How about being on the receiving end of actual racism and sexism? Like, which do you think is worse? And so part of how we, if we choose to, not that we have to, but if we choose to use our privilege, it's that we then can, can I use some of my privilege in a way, not in a condescending, you know, sort of, oh, well, I'm going to come in and have some God complex and make it all better for you. But can I use some of my privilege in a way that might make things better for people who have less privilege? And ultimately that makes it better for all of us. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that I say in, in my keynotes is I, I talk about, you know, the inner world of women and how that really holds us back from rising. Yeah. How we hold ourselves back. But I always preface it with saying, please know that I am aware that systems of sexism exist, that Mm -hmm. systemic racism exists. This is not to say that those things don't exist. They absolutely do. And then it's like, where does our power lie? Because the truth is the way the systems are set up right now, it's really not only for white men to be the ones at the top, but it's for one specific type of white man. Sure. No, absolutely. And, 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 you know, one of the things that's interesting about my perspective on all of this, like I didn't fully, and it took me many years even to fully understand some of these things. And there's probably a lot of it. I don't, I see it from my own biased perspective, of course. Right. But I grew up, right. As you know, a block and a half from where you live in Oakland. And I was raised by a really strong single mom who was kind of a, you know, sort of second wave feminists or before her time, like raised, my mom was raised in Rhode Island as a Catholic schoolgirl, and like moved out to San Francisco in the sixties and got really engaged in the feminist movement in a unique kind of way, if you will. And then raised me and my older sister in this way that like, I didn't even totally understand as a kid, but things like her talking about Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King at home in this way of this reverence and like pulling me out of school, Amy, when I was 10 to take me downtown Oakland to city hall to see Geraldine Ferraro speak when she was running for vice president. Cause like that was really important to my mother. And it was important that I understood that. And then me going to school in Oakland and the vast majority of my social circle and my friends, especially by the time I got to junior high and high school being African-American or definitely non-white, if you will. And so again, I didn't think of these things in the context at that time, but as a white kid, a white boy growing up with these influences, again, it's not, doesn't somehow make me some special whatever, but it's like, it wasn't until I got to college. And then I was like, Oh, I went to Stanford and was like, Oh, I see this very differently now because I get sort of how the system, if you will, kind of works. And even though I look the part, I felt ironically super uncomfortable in that environment because I wasn't used to that. My friends would call me from home and say, what's it like at Stanford? And I'd say, well, 
I've never been around this many white people in my life. And that was the truth. And again, it was really the truth. And I was like, I'm trying to figure out my way. Like, who am I? Because I didn't totally always feel like I belonged back at home and had to do a lot of what we know, understand, and I read about, I got my degree in American studies, this notion of women and people of color having to code switch all the time and sort of be different than, right? And then I was like, I think I actually know what that feels like because I did that a lot as an adolescent. And then here I was in this environment where it was like, oh, a lot of people look like me and seems like I fit in in that way. But I was like, I don't really feel like I fit there because a lot of these kids didn't grow up in similar environments that I grew up in. So again, that just gave me a certain perspective, I think, and, and a, not an understanding. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a person of color. I don't know what it's like to be gay. I just know what it's like to be me. But mm-hmm. underneath all of that, I've always been drawn to both curiosity of that. And then again, how do we find in the midst of all of our difference, how do we celebrate that, appreciate that, understand that, have empathy for that, support each other, and at the same time, figure out how we're more similar than we're different. Find that common ground for us as human beings because to what you were just saying earlier, I think it's important to understand the systems of sexism and racism and other aspects that hold people back that we need to continue to change. And yet at the same time, and I say this with as much respect as I possibly can, not give all of our power away to that to say, well, what do you want from me? The world's not fair and I don't get a fair shake. I think most of us, you know, even a bunch of straight white men like me could have a legitimate story for why that's true. And it just doesn't usually end up serving us. Yeah. I, well, I think that that's beautiful. And I think more than anything, we need male allies. We need white allies. You know, people of color need white allies. Like it's just the truth. And so the more that we can speak and convert more people to becoming allies, the better. And, and, and the bottom line is, you know, when you and I were growing up, they didn't, we didn't get any training in any of this. Nobody was talking about it. I mean, I look at what my, the training my daughters have received already, my kindergartner even, and my seventh grader, they know way more than I knew just like 10 years ago, I feel like. For sure. There's so much more awareness. I remember being a senior in high school, Skyline High School in Oakland, 1992. The riots happened in Los Angeles right after the Rodney King verdict. And it was like, super intense, Amy, at our school. There was a big walkout and there was a lot of tension around this. And I, and I was like, I knew everybody. I was like popular kid in school on the basketball team and baseball team. And again, all these friends of mine and my African-American friends were so upset and so angry. And it was like scary. I remember just being like scared because I'm looking at my friends and I'm like, wait a minute, what, what, what is going on? And this, my friend, Sean had this conversation with me that had a huge impact on me. He said, Mike, you don't understand this. And I said, what do you mean? You don't understand what's going on right now in the black community. He said, what did your parents, what did your mom teach you about the police Mm. growing up? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, just like, don't get in trouble and like listen to the cops. And and, and he's like, yeah, man, that's not what my parents taught me about the cops. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, they taught me, look, there are some good cops, but there's some bad cops and you don't know the difference. And they're not always on your side and they're not always the good guys. And he's like, and we've seen so much stuff happen in our community and generations of this. And we finally have a videotape of seeing what these people were doing to this poor man. And they got off. You have no idea the amount of rage and the amount of helplessness that, and I was like, it made me realize in that moment, wow, not that I didn't know this, but like my experience is so different. This is my good friend, Sean, who I like played basketball with and I knew really well and had been at his house and knew his family. And 
And it was a really important, albeit scary moment for me, but just to realize like, oh, we walk through the world and yeah, we're all connected and we are all in this together. I believe that. But it's like what people are saying right now about the pandemic. It's like, we're not in the same boat. We're in the same storm collectively, but we're in very different boats. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's important to acknowledge like, wow, I'm really fortunate to be in this pretty cool boat that I'm in. <laughs> can I be grateful for that? And can I pay attention to what other people's boats are like and see, is there anything that I can do to help you out in your boat? Because over here, my boat, we're doing okay. It's not perfect, but we're doing okay. And maybe you could use a hand. And this is not only something culturally and societally that we can do, but this happens at work. This happens in life. You know, you show up at work one day and you're really struggling. Can I lend a hand? Because maybe in that moment, for whatever reason, I'm not struggling or I got some energy. I can lean in. Hey, Amy, do you need something? Can I help yeah. you out? Because I know you're going to do the same thing for me when I show up that, you know, two weeks from now and I'm really struggling. That's what great teams do for each other. Everyone can see why this book is so powerful and see also why hearing Mike speak at companies like Google and Wells Fargo and all the places that he works, why everyone just loves him and he gets booked nonstop. <laughs> I know you'll be out there again on the road doing your thing in person and mm. I'm doing let's, let's hope. virtual things. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, you know, the way that you write and the way that you bring in your personal experiences your client stories, your own vulnerabilities is so beautiful. Thank you. I really want to encourage everyone to really check this book out and check Mike's work out as well. Um, Mike, I want to wrap up this. I feel like I could talk to you forever. I feel like yeah. we, I'm like, I have 17 more questions. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll do it again. Yes. But um, the final question I always ask all my guests is what's messy and what's magical about your life these days, Mike? Hmm. Um. What's messy is, um, you know, the, the, what's happening right now in the world. I mean, trying to figure out how do I show up in the midst of all of what's going on in the world and be, be of service to the people around me, to my family, to clients, to everybody that I'm around. And at the same time, managing my own anxiety, my own heartbreak, my own um, just deep, concern and fear about what's happening in the world and also just you know trying to make this through from my business and our business and make sure everything's okay and it's uh i'm finding it exhausting yeah um and what's magical is just the the, the moments of grace and of gratitude and i've had you know moments with each of our girls that have just been so sweet and so um surprising in the midst of this where, you know, we're just laughing in the backyard or sitting on the couch watching a, you know, TV show or just some like little random moments that uh, I'm really appreciating that even in the midst of wishing none of this were happening. I'm enjoying the the sweet tender moments that, that don't happen as often as I'd like them to, quite frankly. So that's pretty cool. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of the Amy Ayler Show. With that, we will bid you adieu and say, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of life even during this crazy time. Until next time, signing off.